So, uh, I am Joe Weaver. And Eric Peterson. And I'm Jim. And this is Speaking of Race. Birthday edition. Jim's 70th birthday is coming up this week, and in addition to all the great things we always do on this podcast, we wanted to celebrate his special day. So I'm going to light a candle right now. (laughs) Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Oh, no. We lost Joe. Happy birthday to you. Okay. Okay. Um, make a wish, Jim. <laughs> Yay! Okay. All 70 candles. Sounds good. How are we going to do this episode? Um, well, we were going to be informal, since we're already, you know, wearing party hats and drinking scotch, and we were going to just talk kind of ad lib on a theme. We were going to theme about our experiences teaching race classes at the University of Alabama. Well, um, okay, so we thought we'd let Jim off the hook and sort of let him be the question asker since it is his birthday after all. Joe. Jim. What got you started thinking about doing the project that you did last year on race and fieldwork in anthropology? Oh, yeah, okay. So so was it 1991? There were a couple of anthropologists who published a paper in the journal American Anthropologist looking at the degree to which anthropologists themselves, in this case it was biological anthropologists, um, perceived race as a social category versus a biological or pure category. What they found was rather surprisingly that there were a pretty large number of biological anthropologists out there who were willing to state that race had some sort of biological foundation. In that first survey, it was like 30 or 40 percent. It was it was, it was a large number yeah. of people. And that was kind of a um, smack in the face to the discipline as a whole, because after all, we're the ones who are supposed to have, in theory, a nuanced understanding of race and what it does. But remember also that many of those biological anthropologists were direct descendants just a generation or two back from Hooten, who we've talked about before in this podcast. Uh, who was very invested in the idea of biological race. And so I wanted to know, and Jim wanted to know, um, where we stand on that now. This was 91, so it would have been the late 80s probably when the data were collected. And so here we are. Things are different in the world now. And we went back and uh, produced a survey and circulated it at our national meetings. We ended up with over seven or 800 responses, a lot. Um, and the results were, you might say, encouraging. The vast majority of people disagreed with the possibility of race being biological and instead described a culturally constructed notion of race. I think it was upwards of 95% of people. Now, this was not only biological anthropologists, but anthropologists across subfields. It appears that within the discipline, the understanding that race is a social construct has <clears throat> permeated. Even among biological even among biological anthropologists, probably thanks largely to the work of people like Jim and Bill, who we'll speak to now. Bill Dressler is a biocultural anthropologist at the University of Alabama as well, who has spent his entire career doing really seminal work on looking at the ways in which the inability of a person to live up to culturally defined standards of a good life profoundly shapes um, their long-term health, particularly when it comes to things like blood pressure and cardiovascular disease. He spent a lot of time looking at how discrimination based on race or socioeconomic status 
seems to impact health very negatively in the long term through chronic stress. Jim was my very first real collaborator here at the University of Alabama. But as time went by, we collaborated on an NIH proposal to continue our community-based collaborative work in the West Side community. And that was the president's expert report on mental health. It was a Jimmy Carter thing. And it was a it was really focused on health and mental health in minority communities. And one of the major thrusts of that report was that research comparing racial and ethnic groups in the United States was premature. We didn't know enough about processes within the community and variation within the community that made comparative research really problematic. And we, we took that very, very seriously. And our interest was not in any way, shape, or form comparing Black folks and white folks. We were interested in variation within the African-American community what distinguished risk groups with respect to hypertension, but also with respect to lipids and and other kind of stuff too. We ended up focusing really on, on hypertension with respect to cardiovascular disease risk factors. What was it that explained intra community variation and to have a focus on that first before you went on and tried to uh, make any kind of sensible comparative uh, statements, or actually, before you went on to do any kind of comparative research. We've got data out of that West Side study showing variation in blood pressure responsiveness to mundane social interaction based on uh, people's skin tone, you know, that with darker-skinned folks, you know, there were certain kinds of interactions, and with lighter-skinned folks, there were other kinds of interactions. You know, it's racial typological thinking so permeates even the scholarship that... Especially in the scholarship. Yeah, maybe especially in the scholarship, that if you're looking at, as we did, if you're looking at variability within this defined African-American community that somehow you're not really studying race. (laughs) Right. And of course we were, we were. Okay. Thank you so much, Bill. Why don't we ask you, Jim, how and when and why you originated the class that you taught for so many years on race at the university of Alabama. Well, I addressed some of the origin myth of my class in, in the first episode uh, of the series and I, I started with a, a reader with two students. Two students signed up to take this, you know, 400-level reader on race. And it was just the three of us for me to try and figure out what I wanted to do because I knew that, that this university needed a class, this kind of a class, because it's the University of Alabama, because we have the doorway that was blocked by George Wallace to, you know, to prevent the enrollment of black students. During the stand in the schoolhouse yeah, door. Be- so in other words, you were looking to the cultural history of this campus and saying, wow, we need to be teaching a critical approach to race on and this campus. And because of the reception by the neocons, 
What's a neocon? Neoconservatives. So in other words, you are seeing this sort of broad political movement in the United States? It it was very upsetting how well-received the bell curve was in some circles. Ah, the book, In spite of the fact, yes, in spite of the fact that it was obviously scientifically incredibly flawed. Why don't we talk about it a little bit now? What was the bell curve and why was it important? It was written by a sociologist and a, what's Hernstein, a psychologist? or uh, By two flaming racists who basically said that we are becoming a society of classes based on ability, and that ability is directly linked to the genetic background of the different racial groups. And so we were breeding an underclass and an overclass in this country based on the racial differences that existed. So is this really alarming resurgence of biological racism. I see I saw this in 1969 when Jensen published his his piece on uh, on how intelligence was entirely genetically determined and it was the genetic differences between the races that accounted for the differences in test scores and success in school that we see between blacks and whites in this country. And so it it felt like we were just going through that all over again when I really thought we had gotten past it. I really did. Um, and we hadn't, obviously. It became something that, that I needed to say something about, and my venue is the classroom. And so that's where I started saying things about it. Eric, why don't you tell us about what you teach and why? You want me to talk about my race and science class? or Oh, I want you to talk about what it's like to teach yes. race at the University of Alabama and why you do it and how you, how you, how you view it. And Yeah, you could talk about the process of actually doing it. Um, I've actually taught my race and science class at three different universities now. And each place has some overlap, some similarities. You Uh, mean the course in each place? The students and the way the students Ah. respond. The course, I'm a perfectionist, I guess, maybe. And so I change it every time to try to make it a little bit better or just change it, just to change it. And uh, I feel like much of what I end up doing is just myth busting. What myths are you busting? Uh, I think one of the big ones is the athlete one. Uh, sickle cell only being a disease of black people is another one. What do you mean by the athlete one? Usually I, I give a survey at the beginning of the class. I give them the stats of high school uh, football, college uh, NCAA football, and NFL players. And it increasingly becomes an African-American dominated sport the further along the line that you get. And then I ask the students what accounts for this. Um, many times students understand that you're not supposed to say race is a real thing or that the reason why people are better at whatever shooting foul shots uh, is because of their race, but they don't have any other explanation to put in that in that box. And so either they say nothing or they default to stuff. Anyway, that's usually the same, no matter where I've taught. What's interesting is coming to the University of Alabama, students are often versed in being able to talk about race without talking about themselves and race. So they're they're okay with talking about race in the abstract, but they very rarely will share personal experiences. And that's different than my experience teaching at Northern schools where students could talk about their own personal experiences, but were, didn't really have much of a concept abstractly about how different groups deal 
with race in the United States anyway. That's interesting because I have I have seen a lot of the personal experience discussions here. The thing is, you, you have to remember, I was teaching before we grew, before we started getting kids from all over the country. So it was mostly a southeastern population that I was working with. And they had a little bit of a concept of race, but they had a lot of personal you know, personal stories. Of course, I start off the class with uh, something like our first episode in here so that they know what my background is with race. And so then they start coming forward with stories and they're bringing in stories about their roommate and fighting with their husband. I have had one divorce over the 15 years I taught the course uh, because uh, husband and wife could not get their heads together about the race. The woman was in the class and she just couldn't stand her husband dealing, not dealing with race as a cultural construct. <laughs> well done. I didn't start teaching about the, the athletic stuff or questioning about the athletic stuff until I had a student in the spring of 2009. Uh, he got everything that I was teaching in that class, but he could not let go of the athletics. He just, that was the one thing. Everything else was fine, but he couldn't let go. And the next, you know, over the summer, I got Darwin's Athletes by Hoberman, and I started doing some research, and I put together a week where we just talked about athletics. They could get the genetic question. They could get the intelligence, you know. They could get all of the other stuff, but they could not separate out. This fellow could not separate out athletics. He couldn't get over that. Meaning he couldn't square social constructions of race with the fact that most of the athletes he was watching were African-American. Exactly. And that's why that week is in that course now. It's one of the most popular weeks in the course still. So, Joe, how are you teaching this stuff? Uh, So we spend the first third of the course looking at history stuff, although I'm not sure you would call it history. It's fine. It's history. It counts. (laughs) All right. It counts. We spend the second third looking at human biology and the last third looking at contemporary social issues or the questions and answers people come into that class with, which are things like, if race isn't real, then why do why is sickle cell a black disease? Or if race isn't real, then why are the vast majority of football players or basketball players African-American? They must have some advantage. And so the last third of the course is set up to, to provide answers to those questions that students have and that their families have when they go home and they tell them, hey... Race is a social construction. People immediately say, well, what about sickle cell? What about basketball? I love teaching it. Out of a 38-year teaching career, it was my favorite course. It got the students to see somebody get white privilege for the first time in their life, to understand it, and all of a sudden say, oh, my God. There's nothing I can imagine experiencing in a classroom that comes up to that. Yeah, it's pretty profound. And so one thing I'm changing this year is I'm adding a week at the end on race and privilege is sort of where do we go from here. So we're going to do a lot of discussion of white privilege and what it looks like. And now that the students have been in this course all semester, they have the tools to get that. So I try to do that in my intro to cultural anthropology too, but it's um, they haven't those students haven't spent a whole semester thinking and talking about race historically and biologically as a social construction. And so they're less well primed to sort of on a deep level, grasp the idea of privilege. One thing I find a lot in whenever I start talking about race at the University of Alabama is that students kind of roll their eyes and say, oh, I have learned about civil rights history so many yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I meant when I said the abstract stuff. 
Yeah, like in this state, apparently, um, secondary education involves a lot of discussion of the civil rights movement and Alabama's role in it. But what I'm trying to teach and what you guys are trying to teach is something very different than the sort of official history of civil rights in Alabama. And I think it can be really hard to get students to stop the eye rolling and get the foot in the door so that they're like, oh, wait a minute, we're talking about something different now. It's almost as though students are, have heard about it so many times they're tired of hearing about it. And they're like, oh, we're going to talk about that again. I think they also really dislike that Alabama is the butt of the joke for the rest of the nation so many times. That's fair. And they yeah. are tired of hearing that they get to be the bad guy again. Which is fair. So I spend a fair amount of time trying when I talk about race to make the point that we have equally racist policies and practices in New York City as we have here in Alabama and to sort of debunk. There's more apartheid schools in New York than there are in Alabama. Right. And so perhaps part of it is also giving students a way to understand that Alabama isn't just the bad guy. I'm interested in hearing, do you guys have memorable, either really positive or really negative experiences from teaching this class? Probably the, the best thing I remember out of the class was this woman, one of the National Merit Scholars for Latinas. She was very bright and very shy, and she did just beautifully throughout the class. She did more outside research, I think, than any student I had in that class over all the times I taught it. Overprepared, kind of like me. (laughs) She was always ready to go, and after she wrote the final, she came up and gave it to me, and she said, I almost dropped the first day of class when you said we had to talk in here, and I am so glad I didn't. That that just really warmed my heart. Um, and then I had a skinhead drop after two weeks when he figured out I wasn't talking about race from the, it is a real phenomenon perspective. No. That was your worst? No. Really? No. What was your worst? Privileged white kids who don't get it, don't want to get it, and are angry at me for talking about it. That's my worst experience. What about you? Do you have good or bad experiences that you could recount? Yes. Yes, I do. Probably the worst experience that I've had teaching about sort of race and social justice was not actually in the race class. It was in cultural anthropology the first time I taught it. And at the end of the semester, most of my reviews, you know, those reviews you fill out that everyone thinks no one reads, we read them. If we want to be self-punishing. And so I read this review, and the student made a comment about how um, my class was everything that was wrong with the country and how I was a social justice warrior. And um, Eric knows this story. You probably know this story too, Jim. How sitting in my class made him want to drop, take the red pill and drop into the manosphere, at which point I was like, what in the heck is that? So I Googled it. And the Manosphere, it turns out, is this loosely collected network of blogs and online resources that are devoted to reinstating a patriarchal, like systematically patriarchal society frequented by youngish men in their 20s and 30s who are white and unmarried. Unsurprising. Anyway... What, what that did for me wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, I'm so offended that this guy didn't like my class. It made me realize, it was a big wake-up call. It made me realize that I was not getting through to the very people that it was most important to be getting through to. And so I have been very preoccupied since I got that review with thinking about how to, like I said earlier, sort of get my foot in the door with people who might have already dismissed what I have to say 
before I start saying it. And so I spend a lot of time in all of my classes explaining why I'm telling them what I'm telling them, making sure that they don't think it's just because I think it's fun or neat or because I'm a communist, but that this is the way that we go about doing social science and sort of trying to strip the ideology out of what I teach as much as possible, which is one of the most difficult but also most rewarding things I've ever had to do. Um, and how one of the do reasons, you do that? How, how do, do I do that? How can you disconnect that? Well, it's one of the reasons I really love teaching here as opposed to institutions I've taught at before, which are much more liberal student body-wise and much more progressive where you don't have to do any of that priming. Um, how do you do that? So I look to our theoretical four parents and I say, this is how so-and-so did it. This is why this tells us something useful. So a good example is cultural relativism, which is the basic tenet of cultural anthropology that a culture should be viewed and understood from its own perspectives rather than from an outsider's perspective. And, and so that could be read by somebody who is just listening to me talk about the idea of cultural relativism as an ideological standpoint, as a statement about equity and equality around the globe. And it is. Um, it serves that purpose. But I describe it to my students as a way of trying to objectively understand, like from a scientific perspective, what people do and why they do it, not as a value judgment about whether or not they're correct. Do you have more things you want to talk about or more questions you want to ask specifically, Joe? Like, why aren't you finishing your cupcake? I can't. Can't finish cupcake. Can't do it. I was going to pass it over to you, but it's like this gnarled little mashy misery blob, and I felt kind of guilty <laughs> passing the misery blob to Eric. Jim, misery blob? So, Jim, you have a lot of experience doing this. What are some takeaway lessons that you think that those of us who are interested in this field maybe aren't even in the position of being a professor teaching it, but maybe they're listening to the podcast and they're thinking, man, I recognize that I want to be more of an advocate for some of the, for some of the issues that I'm seeing out there in, in society. Do you have advice for people who aren't necessarily professors, aren't necessarily in the position to teach, but Want to do something? Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, Jim. What? I, okay. I think the best approach is to get a handle on the biological stuff, get that out of the way, and then grab the culture by the balls and, and run with it. Uh, because if you can't get over the biological hurdle, if you're stuck with people still having a just this strong idea that race has this important biological connection, then you're never going to be able to make the cultural arguments that need to be made. You're never going to be able to move the cultural direction in, in, in the way it's supposed to be moved. Spoken like a true human biologist. The complexity of that is that not everybody has access to your course or mine or Eric's where they're thinking about the sort of non-biological nature of race. But, you know, I agree with you. I think that because biology is a source of truth and validity that we as a society recognize, being able to ground your arguments in biology is very compelling. But I struggle a lot with how much priming people really need in order to be able to understand that on sort of a gut level. Because the more priming they need, the higher the bar or the higher the hurdle for the average person who's not in college taking one of our classes to understand what that means. Remember our last episode? Yes, I do remember that it. That was really... <laughs> I can't remember that far back myself, but 
that was um, a relatively general description of the biological side of why race is a cultural construct. Um, so what I hear Jim advocating is tackle the biology, get down to the nitty-gritty. It, what, what approach would you suggest if you can't do that? I can talk until I'm blue in the face about people understanding race as a cultural construction, and people get it, even in my intro to cultural anthropology class, but always people say, what about sickle cell? Right? And so I start off the race and health class with the what about sickle cell question, and I say, it appears to be common knowledge that sickle cell is an African-American disease, but here are all these reasons why not, or it might not have ever been a disease that we perceive as African-American had it not been for certain historical facts and evolutionary facts that led us to this point where it seems like a natural conclusion to say that sickle cell is racially patterned. Um, do you now want me to explain in detail what I mean by that? Okay. Yes. Can you explain in detail what you mean by that? So we know that people have higher incidences of sickle cell in parts of the world where there's more malaria. It just so happens that in Northern Europe, there isn't a lot of malaria. So Northern European populations never developed much prevalence of the sickle cell allele. It just so happens that in Western Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, there is a lot of malaria. So people who were there for generations and generations developed a higher prevalence of the sickle cell gene. So, of course, we have Western Europeans settling America, bringing slaves from West Africa, and those are two very different populations that had very different exposures to malaria. And in fact, it is true that people of African descent in the U.S., because many of them have relatives from Western Africa, do have a higher incidence of the allele for sickle cell. Had we, as a country, been settled initially by, say, Mediterraneans, Greeks, rather than Northern Europeans, um, and perhaps had those Mediterraneans, once they settled in the New World, had imported slaves from South Africa rather, rather than West Africa, we would see the opposite because people in Mediterranean areas tend to have a higher incidence of sickle cell as well. And so, and, and people in South Africa do not have much sickle cell. So if that were the case, we would see sickle cell as a white disease or as a Mediterranean disease rather than a black disease. Um, but that's something that we don't know and we don't learn much in the U.S. because it's simply not what we see in front of our eyes every day. And because in intro biology classes, we often use sickle cell as the, the classic Mendelian trait and you, you use your Punnett squares and you do that little sickle cell thing. And people at that moment when they're learning biology in 10th or 11th grade hear, hey, there's this disease called sickle cell that African-Americans have. Right? Totally. And this goes back well into history, but it's also in current high school biology books. And that's all we have time for on today's episode. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy birthday, Jim. Uh, I'm Joe Weaver, the cultural anthropologist. I'm Eric Peterson, the historian of science. I'm Jim Binden, the old white guy. Thank you for listening to Speaking <laughs> of Race, and we hope to see you again soon. Don't forget to visit our Facebook page, and please give us comments if there are items that you want us to consider or, or talk about on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Yay!